Hello, and welcome to Four Advisors, the podcast for and about financial advisors. I'm your host, Dave Polis, and today we've got a very special guest. Marnie Hards of Asnar Financial Advisors in New Jersey is joining us, and we'll be discussing how a successful advisor, who previously sought continuous growth, realized that she wasn't finding satisfaction in that larger firm and right-sized it to the point where she was helping just the ideal client and found balance between work and home life. Marnie founded Asnar Financial Advisors in 1999 after working as a financial planner with the ACO company and as an associate with PricewaterhouseCoopers and in corporate finance with Booz Allen Hamilton. Marnie was a master's degree of business administration from Fairleigh Dickinson University and her undergrad in finance from Cornell earned her certificate in financial planning in January of 2001. Marnie is an active member in NAFPA, AICPA, and FPA. She worked with NAPFA on basic training, aimed at teaching new planners the intricacies of developing a financial plan. Marnie's been quoted in Kiplinger's Personal Finance Magazine, Ladies Home Journal, Investment Advisor Magazine, Smart Money, and The Daily Record, and is a frequent contributor to the Star-Ledger. Marnie's been an adjunct professor at Fairleigh Dickinson, and is a strong advocate of financial literacy and education in public high schools. Marnie, welcome to the program. We're so glad you could join us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. You've got a very impressive background and have grown your firm to just the right size for you to find a good balance. But it didn't start out that way, did it? Can you uh, give my audience a little background on how you got started after leaving the corporate world? Sure, I'd be happy to. So as you mentioned in the introduction, I did have a variety of corporate jobs in a fairly short amount of time after I graduated from college. And I learned quite a bit and I met a lot of wonderful people, um, but I wasn't getting what I was looking for and kind of what I thought uh, I would get out of a career. And what I really was looking for was something that I would be excited to get up in the morning and to do. Right? I wanted to get up and feel like I was doing something meaningful and impactful and do something that I felt like I was learning every day and contributing something to the world. Um, and you know, I was 24 years old and so somewhat naive and bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and thought, this, this can't be everything. This can't be what you know the, my career is going to look like. And I felt like so early on, I'd already gotten on this kind of hamster wheel and, and just didn't want to stay on it. And so I thought, okay, let me begin to explore some options. Um, and I had had a job doing financial planning, which I really enjoyed. Um, and I thought that would be a, just a really fun career where I could do a lot of good and help people and learn and, you know, have some control over my life. Um, so I started looking at my options. And I, I reached out to a variety of NAPFA members, a variety of FPA members, and it was really remarkable how helpful and um, warm. And I, I got so many wonderful responses. I had a couple of job offers. I had a couple of um, people who encouraged me to start my own firm. And I, I was a little blown away at that thought. I thought, you know, I've, I've been working for only a few years. I don't have a ton of experience. How could I possibly start my own firm? Um, so, but it kind of began to simmer in my head, this thought. And I, I said to myself, well, you know, maybe, maybe I'll do it. And I, I talked to my father who was always um, very supportive and thought through kind of the way that I usually think about things is what's the worst that happens, right? 
if this doesn't work and a year from now it's a complete disaster, then I go back to the corporate world or I get a job at a small financial planning firm. And that's kind of always been my guiding principle is I don't want to ever look back and think, what if? What, you know, what if I had tried something and it had turned out great? And at that time, it was really, um, you know, I was living in a rent-controlled apartment. I did not yet have any children. I had health insurance through my husband. And it felt like, well, maybe, maybe this, if I'm going to do it, maybe this is the time to do it. And so I went in and I, I spoke to my boss at my, my job at the time, my corporate job at Booz. And I, I really, he was, I was looking to him for some guidance and some direction. He knew me fairly well. I'd been working with him for over a year. And I explained to him my predicament and kind of what I wanted out of life. And although I, I felt like, you know, I was doing a good job for him, it didn't really light my fire. And so he says to me, well, Marnie, if you decide that you're going to start your own firm, then I'll be your first client. And I was absolutely blown away. This was a man who, you know, at 24, he was ancient, almost 40 years old and was a VP <laughs> at a corporate, um, uh, in a corporate environment, had a great job, a good income. He had a stay at home wife and three young children at home. And I thought to myself, well, if, if this man is going to trust me with his financial future, then there will be other people in the world who will as well. And that really kind of was what pushed me into say, all right, let's just do it. Jump in head first, figure it out as you go along and let's see what happens. And, um, that was 20 years ago. <laughs> so, wow. yes, it's, it's turned out to be a really phenomenal decision in a lot of different ways. Um, but that, that's kind of how it got started. Yeah. That, that is quite a journey. You've, you've really <laughs> let us sort of in on the, the, the behind the curtain, the behind the scenes look at how those decisions got made. And I, I agree with you. Sometimes you have to uh, plan for the worst and hope for the best. Right. Um, it's, it's a good way to back up your decisions and to, and to sort of give you some courage to go forward, especially starting your own, which we've both done several times. And it's, it's never easy. So the initial plan for the RIA was to, to go find as many clients like your, your boss there that was the brave one to be the guinea pig and <laughs> find some more like him and, and build a solid book of business based on whatever came down the pike. That's right. uh, what sort of marketing activity were you doing at the time to, to sort of help build that initially? So I did really everything that I could think of. Um, I, I met some reporters from the local paper, so I got my name in the paper a few times. And the advisors who I had done informational interviews with prior to making this decision were all fairly well established and had significant minimums. And as we know, there are a lot of, of prospects who don't meet those minimums. And so I raised my hands and said, you know, me, you know, pick me. You can you can refer them um, to the new advisor down the road. So I, I was fortunate that I had a few referrals from other advisors because they didn't meet their minimums who, you know, 20 years later are fantastic, is still clients and, and really fantastic clients. So so that was helpful. Um, I also um, was asked by one of my professors at the local university if I wanted to teach. Um, and when you first start out, you don't have a lot of clients, so you do have extra time. And so I taught some corporate, I'm sorry, some undergrad and um, graduate 
finance courses at the local university. And I taught a, a course, which I still teach to this day, a summer course to teenagers, uh, ninth through 12th graders about personal finance. So it was just kind of getting my name out there. Um, you know, I built a website and um, I went and did talks anywhere that they would take me. Um, and I also was very fortunate to sit on a panel with some other women business owners, one of whom was an estate planning attorney. And she and I hit it off and had lunch after the, the panel. And so I needed a good estate planning attorney to refer business to, and she was excellent. And so I referred business to her. And after she saw the, the way that I worked with my clients and how diligent I was and how involved in the process, she referred some clients to me, and I've been fortunate to meet other centers of influence for a variety of ways who have referred business to me as well. Um, so, you know, a lot of the typical, I guess, typical things people do to try and just get their name out there. And I was fortunate also that Jerry, my first client, was very happy. And so, you know, that's all you need is one happy client and they will tell other people. And so I very slowly began to build my business and really at the time would obviously, you know, take anyone, whether it was, I mean, I would do pro bono work, I did hourly work, I did project work, anything and anyone um, was a client at that time, I think like for a lot of people. In the, in the early days, you take anyone who can fog a mirror, right? Well, yeah, ultimately, that's that's what you're looking for, just to build a book so you have a base to work from. Right. And, and mostly what it comes down to is visibility and and quality delivery so that your referral rate starts to escalate. Yes. Can you uh, give the audience a little reference frame as to, to what year that was started in and, and what was the climate in the, in the advisor community at the time? What was what was sort of the overarching issues that were running well, around then? Uh, when I first started, it was um, the end of 1999 and the first six or seven years, I really just did financial planning. I did no investment management. And so in 2006, after I had built a fairly significant client base and a lot of the clients wanted, wanted me to manage their portfolios. So I decided at that time that I would um, attend a DFA conference, Dimensional Fund Advisors Conference, and I, I submitted a business plan and was approved by them to offer their funds. And I set up an arrangement with TD Ameritrade to custody at, at TDA. And so I started managing money about two years before the- <laughs> Before everything blew up, yeah. <laughs> when everything blew up. And it was remarkable that I actually didn't have any clients who, who had panicked or sold out. I mean, there was, I, I suppose some panic, but I was so, uh, diligent about being in touch with my clients and and contacting them regularly and just the reminder of you know this is normal we will get through this I'm rebalancing your portfolios that that um, we survived and we came out on the other side and and you know it wasn't the best time to start but I've been fortunate that since then it's been it's been a good business to be in. Well, I'd say with zero attrition, you you did pretty well. Yeah. Um, it, once the practice started to grow. Were there, did you notice some commonalities amongst your clients? Were they truly all over the map or were there actually threads through there that you could identify? Well, you know, it was interesting. I think that people tend to look for an advisor that they feel comfortable with and they can relate to. 
Um, so I did start with quite a few fairly young families. Um, I had my first daughter in 2002 and my second in 2005. So I was in this place where I was a young married couple, you know, we were a young married couple, young children, trying to plan for our own retirement, plan for our own college education funding. And so those were the type of people who I attracted, uh, people who were in a similar position to the one I was in. And so I did have quite a few fairly young corporate executives who were just trying to figure out how to balance everything, how to prioritize retirement planning and education funding, you know, and, and so we've kind of grown together. And I also have, so there seems to be two kind of um, niches that I've ended up with, which is this group of, who were young families, not so young at this point. And I also have a group of single women who are kind of early to mid seventies, um, who also seem to have gravitated towards me. And I think part of it is women are oftentimes more comfortable with a woman advisor. So I think that that's been helpful. They feel there's a kind of a different type of communication and a different level of comfort that comes with mm -hmm. a woman who is looking for someone that they feel comfortable with, who sure. they feel is going to talk to them as, you know, kind of, I think we have a different style of communication perhaps than male, some male, female, uh, some male financial advisors do. That's that we've seen that mentioned quite a few times. And in fact, one of our prior episodes, uh, dealt with a lot of the, the gender relations issues that go on in the advisory role. Right. Um, it, we've seen that happen. So it really comes down to likes flock to likes in some degree. But at that yes. point, yeah. you, you didn't really let it enter into your thinking that, hey, I notice I've got these two buckets. Maybe I should just focus on looking for more of those two buckets. It was kind of, well, this is where I ended up. It was unintentional. It was somewhat unintentional. But what has been intentional is that over the years, I have made the decision that and this is not a niche, but I only want to work with clients who I like and clients who value me and the work that I do for them. And that's, you know, that's not always the case. And fortunately, as you become more financially secure, you get to a position where you are able to say, you know what, this is not working um, for me. And so I, I, I guess my niche is I want to work with people who are nice who I, I don't ever want to cringe when I see a name pop up on the caller ID. There's just, there's no amount of money that's worth that. <laughs> I mean, we all know, <laughs> we all know that experience. And so I think years, most of us can relate to that. Yes. Yeah. And so over the years, I've just made it my business to work with people who I like and they like me. And it's a really uh, just a comfortable relationship where we value each other. And um, so, so I, I have, made my practice smaller and it's turned out that I do have these two niches, but I, I never made it kind of a, a conscious effort. That's just kind of what, what turned out. It, it sounds ideal. Now, what, what types of, of marketing activities do you engage in that bring you the perfect client most often? I mean, they can't live forever. You've got to replace them at some point, even right. if you can't wear a tattoo that says I'm a nice client, how do you find <laughs> it? Uh, you know, it's, I would say that my best clients have come from my clients um, because my clients know me and they know the type of person I am and they know the type of work I do and I, they know the type of client who will make the best client for me. And I'm fortunate that they're really careful, I think, about who they refer to me. 
Um, and so I, I think that the best clients have come from my happy clients. And I've also gotten some really wonderful referrals from some of the estate planning attorneys and accountants who I've worked with over the years. That, that sounds exactly what everybody would like. Um, yeah. I noticed earlier on, you said a lot of yours were, were younger executives. Yes. Um, now they're senior executives and some of them in larger, more recognizable corporations. As a standalone strategy or approach, uh, would seeking just corporate executives be a viable niching strategy, do you think? Is that one way you could sort of categorize things uh, for others? Yes, I, I think that would absolutely be a viable niche. I think that um, especially if you can get three or four clients who work for one corporate corporation and you develop a specialty and their employee benefits, their stock option plan, their employee stock option plan, um, their ESOP, their restricted stock units, that you understand their long-term disability plan, um, their, perhaps they have a long-term care insurance plan, and you really become an expert on the, that company, I think that that can be a fantastic way to build a book of business. Just, I work with executives at this company and I know their benefit program inside and out. And I've worked with this person, this person, this person, all of whom are in a better position than they were because of the work they've done with me. I think that's terrific advice. Yeah. We're gonna take a short break. And when we come back, we'll be talking about uh, time management and resale value and client retention. We'll be right back. Are you an RIA or solo financial advisor looking to grow and scale your practice but feel like you need some help? Feel like there are lots of growth options and choices out there but don't have time to research them and don't want to make an expensive mistake? Want to spend more time finding and helping clients instead of time-consuming investment research, compliance checks, or transactional work? If you answered yes to any of these, Pinnacle Advisor Solutions has the answers you need. With a wide range of outsource options and top-rated professional investment management and financial planning support, Pinnacle has a solution that fits your needs, budget, and circumstances to help you scale up, grow your practice, or put a succession plan in place. Call to get more information or set up an appointment with a senior representative at 201-919-4838. And we're back with Marnie Hards of Asnar Financial Advisors. Um, Marnie, earlier when we spoke, not necessarily on the air, but you mentioned that you make enough income to satisfy all your needs and then some and, and to live a very uh, comfortable life and beyond with just a right-sized practice. Can anybody adopt your balanced life strategy and, and do that? What about someone who specializes in maybe younger or less affluent clients? How would they sort of manage that? So I, I'm not sure. I think... I've been very fortunate um, because I have a fairly small client base, but because of the model that I have and the clients I have, um, it's worked out really well. I, I think that I think that if you focus on being excellent for your clients and always doing what you say you're going to do, um, I think that the business will succeed. It, whether or not you can do it with such a small client base, obviously you need to have very profitable clients in order to, to do it with a very small client base. And I've been fortunate 20 years later, I'm an overnight success, right? <laughs> That's often how it goes. 
I think, Suddenly you look up and there you are. Yes. And I think that you need patience and you need to put in the time and be willing in the beginning to kind of do what needs to be done. And I think if with enough time and enough effort and enough really good work and kind of proving yourself to your clients and to centers of influence that you can certainly be successful in this business. Um, and it's, it's a really, you know, to go back to what I said in the beginning of our conversation, it's gives you that sense of meaning and sense of I'm really making a difference in the world. And that, that was what was so important to me. You know, I've had a few client situations where it's just, and, and back to your question about marketing, when you can tell prospects, so this is after you get someone in your door and you're trying to kind of, you know, trying to make it clear to them the value of financial planning, the stories mm -hmm. that you tell them really are, can be so powerful. And I've had, you know, a client who sent me an email. I, I got an email. I get up very early in the morning. So I got it around 5 a.m., but he said it at midnight the night before. And he said, I just want you to know that when you're rushed to Morristown Memorial Hospital in the middle of the night, there is nothing better than knowing that your finances are in order. And he had somehow contracted flesh-eating bacteria and literally was an hour from death. And he had to have a massive surgery. And, you know, he was a very young man. He was, he was late thirties with two little kids at home and a wife. And we had spent a year or two already working together. So he had his estate planning documents in place. He had disability insurance in place. He had, um, his, Taxes were organized. He had set aside money for the 529 plans for his kids. He had disability insurance. And he knew that everything that needed to be done, if God forbid he was severely disabled or passed away, we had sufficient life insurance in place, um, you know, that he was going to be okay. And I think that when you're trying to get prospects kind of into the practice, if you could tell them some powerful stories where you recognize that life doesn't always go the way you want it to go. And, you know, this man didn't realize this was going to happen, but because of the work we had done, he knew when it happened that he would be okay and his family would be okay no matter what. And I think that, you know, in terms of turning prospects into clients, having some powerful stories like that is very helpful. Um, but back to back to your original question, I, I think yes, if you if you do good work and you are willing to put in the time and the effort and the patience, um, you can absolutely build this kind of practice. Yeah, I I. Can't help but agree. That was an incredibly powerful story, even for me. I had to take a minute there. Yeah. Um, but because you spend more time with each client, you can go into a lot greater depth yes. in building that relationship over time and, and give them the peace of mind that that, that man experienced at a very uh, crisis period in his life. Right. And he was able to, to take that one off of his plate, so to speak, and know that that was handled. Mm -hmm. And obviously, he, he and you together were very diligent about putting all this in place because that was quite an extensive list of, right. of things that he had already done, not knowing this was coming. So you exactly. got to hand it to both of you for, for thinking that far ahead that well. Um, but let's talk about your future for just a second. In, in a right-sized firm, is that value when you go to sell or succeed negatively impacted because there may not be a forward-looking sales pipeline? There may not be a bunch of prospects in the works that you have a, a mechanism for bringing on board. Does, does that have a, a, a different look for a potential buyer? Well, I'm fairly young, so I'm not looking at, at a potential buyer right now. 
Um, and I think that it depends on the client base, depends how sticky they are, what their ages are, right? So right now I have a lot of still fairly young clients um, who I think would, you know, with an appropriate transition would be very sticky with a new firm. Um, and I also have been very careful over the years to build relationships with my clients' children. Um, I have taught classes to them in my home. Um, I have met with many of them to review their own financial situation in my office or on the phone. So I think there's um, probably, you know, some con continuation of clients from the perspective of even when they pass, um, their children would likely continue to be clients. And I actually, I have two teenage daughters now, and <laughs> that could potentially be a succession plan as well, because both of them, there's a possibility that they could go into this field. And um, so that, you know, I'm not sure I'm too worried right now about selling the firm. I like the idea of perhaps, you know, if one or both of them are interested, perhaps the, the family it stays in the family and it becomes Asnar Financial Advisors and the S is actually appropriate. Um, so you've built a bridge to the next generation, both in your practice and with your clients. That, yeah, that sounds like I mean, an ideal way to proceed and to think about the future. Um, that's sort of planning squared. I, I can't <laughs> think of a better way to go about it than that. Yeah. So let me make sure I got this covered. You have more time in your day. You have more time to spend with clients. You have adequate income to foster a very fulfilling lifestyle, both emotionally and financially. Clients who stay around forever and a good value upon sale if you don't already have a secondary succession plan in place for your daughters. It sounds to me like you've cracked the code to happiness. How can we bottle this and, and make a fortune? <laughs> yes, I've been very lucky. Um, so in terms of bottling it, I think that the key is to really focus every day on making sure that you're doing the best that you can for your client. Um, and I think if you do that, you always do what you say you're going to do. Um, and also, I think very importantly, if you make a mistake, own up to it and take care of it immediately. Um, I think that those are some of the most important things you can do to make sure that that you know you keep the clients that you have happy, um, and also you know make sure that you're doing what you need to do for yourself. Take care of yourself because if you're happy, your family is happy, and your clients tend to be happier as well. So everybody's happy. It's kumbaya <laughs> time at cool. Marnie's house. Can, where do I sign? This sounds fantastic. This all sounds like great advice. Marnie, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate the fact that you've uh, come in and talked to us about all this. Some great, great advice for advisors that are looking for a direction. Make yourself happy. Make your clients happy. Do what fulfills you, and they will be fulfilled too. We've been speaking with Marnie Hards of Asnar Financial Advisors in New Jersey about how to right-size an advisory practice to find balance in your working life. If you have questions about how niching or right-sizing your practice can work for you, or about anything you've heard on this program, drop us a line at 4advisors at pinnacleadvisory.com, and we'll get you an answer. You've been listening to 4 Advisors, the podcast for and about financial advisors. I'm your host, Dave Polis, and until next time, thanks for listening. You're listening to 4 Advisors, the podcast for and about financial advisors. This program is for educational purposes only, and the opinions expressed here by guests do not necessarily fully or accurately reflect the legal intent or nature of Pinnacle Advisor Solutions, Pinnacle Advisory Group, or its senior management. 
This program is not intended to give legal, investment, or financial planning advice, and opinions and statements made in this podcast should not be relied on as such. 